0: Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. We're in the middle of a series called 48 Hours. It's the 48 final hours of the life of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion that will lead us into our Easter Sunday. And, um, you know, sometimes if you're new to us, first of all, we're we're glad you're here and we're glad you're a part of... of, our service this morning and and hopefully someone has made you feel welcome and and you're very comfortable but um, let me just explain to you a little bit about our church a lot of times when we do uh, series messages they're fun and they're whimsical and we've done crazy things and and um, I've jumped out of airplanes and and ridden motorcycles and crazy stuff we've we've given away Krispy Kreme donuts that was fun Um, all kinds of things like that where where it's fun and we poke fun at ourselves and we're a church that doesn't really take ourselves too seriously we take Jesus very very seriously and then there are other series that we will do much like this one where there's not a whole lot of poking fun at us there's not a lot of it's not a lot of laughter and and um, you know certainly happiness at the idea that we have been saved but there's not a lot of happiness over the process about which that happened and this is kind of one of those series this this uh, material today especially this story is depressing and not only in what happens to jesus but also in the way the disciples behave suffice it to say that this is not the disciples finest hour we're going to be in matthew chapter 26 today if you have a bible i would encourage you to follow along uh, if you're new to us, we almost always are in Scripture, and, and uh, I encourage you to bring your Bible and also a pen, because especially today, there's a couple of things that I'm going to want you to underline that are kind of things that I think would matter in, in the application of Scriptures to your own life. But um, we put everything up on the wall for you in case you're new and don't realize that we want you in the Bible, that's fine. But uh, if you've got a Bible, I'd like for you to be in it. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 is where we will begin. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus is with his disciples. They have followed him faithfully for three years. They have devoted themselves to him. And Jesus says to him, look, you've got to know something. This very night, all of you are going to fail. All of you are going to fall away from me. You're all going to run. And Jesus is quoting Zechariah, who wrote this particular little thing that he quotes there. And, and it's, he wrote that 300 years before the time of Jesus. And it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. The image here is a very powerful image of a shepherd who goes down and the sheep don't have a shepherd. And they're wandering all over the hillside. With no shepherd, no one to take care of them, nobody to look after their needs. They're in peril. And Jesus drops that on the disciples and he says, Tonight, as in right now, soon, all of you are going to fall away from me. You're all going to fail. and you know the Old Testament you know what Zacharias said and and he he talked about the shepherd who gets struck down and the sheep are going to scatter something is going to happen to me tonight and you all are going to run last week I I showed you a picture of the city I want to revisit that today this is a picture of Herod's temple Um, and and beyond that big structure that you see which was the temple um, there's a ridge and that bridge is about two miles long it's known as the mount of olives and the way you would get to that is you would go out of the city of jerusalem that's a picture i think looking off to the west and and you would go down into a valley the kidron valley and then you would come up onto what was known as the mount of olives and and up in there somewhere was the garden of gethsemane and this kidron valley they they've gone down into the valley they've they've left the Lord's Supper now, they're leaving the city of Jerusalem, they've gone down into the Kidron Valley, they've crossed a bridge, and there's a conversation that is happening among the disciples and Jesus, and they're most likely at the foot of the hill, the Mount of Olives, and and Jesus turns and says, I got news tonight, all of you are going to fall down tonight you're, you're going to trip up you know the passage you, you know what it says about the shepherd being struck down and the sheep are going to scatter well i'm going to get clubbed and you guys are going to scatter and, and it's about 11 o'clock maybe midnight it could be as late as one o'clock in the morning not really sure he is trying to prepare the disciples emotionally for what is about to happen on this night he's speaking to the disciples 11 of them judas has kind of wandered out gone to do his thing and and he says He's talking to guys who have lived with him for three years. He's talking to people who have given up livelihoods. He's talking to people who have shared many meals with him. They've been very devoted to him. They left everything to follow and be mentored by Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I know how I would respond if somebody looked at me and just blatantly said, you're going to fail. Um... I don't know about you, but I don't handle that real well. You know, you get that attitude of, I'm going to prove you wrong. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about when I was in college in an English class, and this lady gets up in front of our class, and she says, I'm just here to tell you, half of you are going to drop this class before it even really gets going real good, and the ones of you who remain, three-quarters of you are going to fail, and none of you are going to get an A. Maybe 10%, maybe 15% of you are going to get a B, but most of you are you just probably ought to leave now well that was i'm not even a great student okay i'm not even i will get to that in a minute but um there's just something that went through me when she said that and i thought oh yeah and i think that 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 kind of is how peter thinks we'll get to peter in a minute verse 32 just want to read it real quick and then we're going to leave it we're going to come back to it Verse 32 says, After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, we're just going to leave that. We'll come back. That's significant. We'll come back to it. Peter responds in verse 33, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Now, I'm just going to tell you, never is a word that I tried not to use. That is a big word. Okay? That word has got, um, you know, sometimes... When you say the word never, you're making promises sometimes you can't keep, okay? So never is an awfully strong word. Peter uses it, though. John can run. James can run. Thaddeus, Bartholomew, all those guys can run. Jesus, I'm just telling you, I will never disown you. Now, Peter does not suffer from a lack of confidence. Even if they all run, I never will. And Jesus looks at him and says, tonight, 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 before the sun comes up before a rooster crows in the morning peter you will have denied me three times you will you will have told people that you don't even know me and peter says basically over my dead body verse 35 peter declared even if i have to die with you i will never disown you and all the other disciples said the same they are not suffering from a lack of confidence and as we see what happens to them, and we see what happens to Jesus, this will not be the disciples' finest hour, and the Bible doesn't try to cover that up. I love that about the Bible. The Bible is, is very um, upfront and open, and it really shows you these disciples' warts and all. These guys did not have it all together. It shows you their weaknesses, their frailty, their failure. Are there ever moments where you are really not at your best? Are are there ever moments where you would say, I embarrass me? (laughs) I'm not talking about your ability to meet someone else's expectation. I'm talking about your ability to meet your own expectation. I think we all have this picture of what we want to be and what we want to look like and what we aspire to and, and you know, we wake up every day and we want to fulfill that picture. We want to be that. But there are an awful lot of days, is there anybody else besides me who walks through life with just a little bit of regret because some of the decisions we've made have not been very good? You know, you wish you could take that one afternoon back. You wish you hadn't said that thing. You wish you hadn't seen that. You wish you hadn't thought that. You wish you hadn't taken that or done that. I'm not talking about other people's expectations of us. I'm talking about our own inability to meet our own expectations. There are times when I would just say, quite frankly, I embarrass me. Not when we are at our best, but those snapshots when we clearly are not at our best. Did you ever get a paperback? from your high school teacher or your college professor and it looked like he or she had bled all over it. I'm not unfamiliar with those. I've seen my share of those. And more than once I have received a paper back that had written at the top, this is not your best work. I wonder how many times over a season in our life you could write those words. This, this is not your best work. As we watch the story unfold today with the disciples, we find ourselves with them, and the story moves. We're coming up the other side of this valley, the, up the olive hill a little bit, and they, they come to an olive orchard. It's, it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you hear garden and you think, well, you know, pretty flowers or maybe a vegetable garden. That's not really, uh, it's, think more along the line of olive trees, a grove of olive trees. Gethsemane means olive press or oil press. And and you would pick olives and then you would put them into this big rock thing and turn it and it would produce this oil from this olive and you would collect that it was and is to this day a stable a staple in that region of the country it it was used for cooking it's used to dip your bread in it's used in cosmetics um, the lower grade olive oil is used to fuel a lamp you would burn your lamp your it was used to light a lamp and they're here in this olive orchard it's called gethsemane i have a picture uh, so that you can kind of see now i don't know that that's exactly what it looked like where jesus was but um, that's a grove of olive trees. I don't even, I'm sure that's not the Garden of Gethsemane, even, but that gives you some idea of what we're talking about. And then we read this in verse 36 when Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Of the eleven disciples, he has eight of them sit. And then he goes further back into this olive orchard. Verse 37 He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Now, that doesn't tell you who that is, but that's James and John. So he takes Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He leaves eight disciples. Judas is off doing whatever Judas was supposed to be doing. And he takes what are often called the inner circle. These three guys, Peter, James, and John, were very close to Jesus. They got a little bit more up-close-and-personal look at Jesus than the other disciples did. Often in Scripture, you'll see that Jesus went off with Peter, James, and John. The other disciples were excluded a little bit, didn't have the same access, and I'm just sure they had no problem with that. You know, I'm sure that they were just fine with being left out once in a while so he has these three and they get exposed to something that the other disciples don't it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled it's like this darkness descends on him i think we easily fall into the idea that when jesus went through all this well you know he was after all God and dying on a cross for God really isn't all that big a deal nonsense (laughs) he knows what's coming and he does not want it he is shaken up he is sad the Bible says he is sorrowful and troubled and then he he speaks to it he talks to him verse 38 then he said to them my soul I, I love it that Jesus goes to these guys and verbalizes this you you get a real glimpse of what he's going through and you get a glimpse of just how pressing this is on him. He verbalizes, my soul is overwhelmed. me just ask you, do you know what it is to be overwhelmed? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And it's as if the disciples, you know, you just have to imagine that they would say, well, what do you need us to do? What can we do? stay here and keep watch with me stay here stay alert i need to be alone but i don't i don't want to be completely alone i need i need some people that are close to me close by but i I need to go be by myself but i don't want to be out there all by myself he verbalizes how he feels my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death it's like he is engulfed with sadness It's like in the moments before the arrest, he gets hit by this wave of paralyzing, almost suffocating grief and sadness. And it's so strong, and he tells them, "It it just—it feels like it's killing me." And these guys who have been so faithful and so loyal to them, he says, "Just stay here, stay alert." I need to be alone, not totally alone. I need my friends around. Verse 39, going a little further, he leaves the eight, then he leaves the three, and we get this body language here. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He leaves the three, and he kind of crumples to the ground the Bible says that he literally falls face down and he starts to pray and the prayer is very simple I don't want to drink what's in this cup do I have to drink what's in this cup and then he says yet not as I will but as you will what do you want God what do you what do you need me to do i don't want to drink this but i want to know what you want me to do and i want to do that he is utterly dismantled he is on his face engulfing sadness overwhelming grief and he says i don't want to drink this but i want to do what you want there's a question that kind of hangs at this point and the the question is what is in the cup And you say, well, he was going to die. Yes, he was going to die. I don't think that it was just that he was going to die. I think it was somewhat in the idea of how he was going to die. You don't read it in this particular chapter, but in Mark chapter 10, you don't need to turn over there. I'm going to just read this passage real quick. Jesus is predicting his death with his disciples, and... um, There's a section in Mark chapter 10 where he's very specific about some things as he's talking to his disciples. It says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. While those who followed were afraid, again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, that's him, will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. That's what was in the cup. Jesus knew not simply that he would be killed. He knew something about the process of how he would be killed. They're going to spit on me. They're going to taunt me. They're going to torment me. They're going to flog me, and they are going to kill me. They're going to take me out and pin me to a cross. He knew this. Jesus had an idea of what was in the cup. And as you read the story, Jesus was at the trial with the Jewish authorities And after he is condemned as a blasphemer worthy of death, that's the penalty for that, one of the writers says that they blindfolded him and the guards took turns punching him in the face. And you just, you got to do what my professor in Bible college told us. You got to put on your sanctified imaginator, okay? You got to be able to visualize in your head Jesus bound, sitting upright, blindfolded and these big burly roman soldier type guys who are pretty foul and they're just hauling off and wailing on him one after another and they're laughing as they do it and they say things like you know call yourself a prophet prophesy and tell us which one just hit you they're, they're just taunting jesus before jesus even leaves the jewish trial his lips and eyes will be swollen one of the things that was in the cup was taunting then he's transferred into roman custody pontius, pontius Pilate uh convicts jesus and and it says they flogged him a, a roman flogging was brutal i've i've explained this to you before but they used something called the cat of nine tails it's a uh, long whip It's got nine leather strands embedded in the leather strands are chips of bone shards of glass and pottery sharp rocks they've either glued or somehow figured out a way to attach those to this this these lashes laces of leather and then they would soak that in a bucket to make it good and wet get it so it would stick so that not only when it hit your skin would it not bounce off but it would wrap around your skin and then they would yank on it and it would literally rip the flesh off your body they did that with him 39 times and it was very systematic across his back how they did it it was designed to render him helpless and without just getting too graphic the volume of blood he would have lost and the, the state of his body Most, a lot of men died in that flogging a lot of men didn't make it off that post Jesus knew what a flogging was like and he knew that that was a part of the cup Jesus said I'm going to be spit on I'm going to be taunted I'm going to be flogged and they are going to kill me The Roman soldiers put him in a chair and they decide to play dress up. They put a robe on him, they hand him a stick as his scepter. After all, he is the king of the Jews. They began to walk around him and and bark and, and yell out, you know, hail king of the Jews. And they're having a blast with this guy that's all bound up and bloodied and beaten. And they take the scepter that he has in his hand, this stick, and they begin to hit him with it then they take a crown of thorns and they uh, embed that into his head these long thorns pressing into his uh, the flesh on his head and the head is a vascular very vascular area anyway so it produces lots of blood mingling down with the probably swollen eyes and swollen jaws and mouth of jesus had to be incredibly uncomfortable and that's being kind then it says they taunted him there are a kazillion billion gajillion reasons why God didn't pick me to be Jesus <laughs> not the least of which is had I had the power of Jesus and I'd been him in this moment everybody in that room would have been dead when Jesus asks you no when Jesus commands you to turn the other cheek he knows what he's talking about whatever you're going through and whatever you've had to deal with and whoever has smacked you and then you hear Jesus say turn the other cheek and you want to press back and say no 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 you remember what they did to Jesus what was in the cup Crucifixion was in the cup. Jesus and his disciples had seen crucifixions before. It was a way of slowly torturing a body until it expired. They did that out on the highway coming in and out of the city. The idea is that as you hang on the cross, your rib cage closes in, making it extremely difficult for your lungs to get oxygen, and you pretty much suffocate. The only way you can get air is that you push up with your feet so that your lungs can expand. You're you're pinned to a cross. You're trying to get air to your lungs. This is made very difficult by the fact that your feet have been pinned by a nail into a board. And this process of pushing up and trying to get enough air so that you could breathe. You didn't... uh, what, What you died of in a crucifixion was asphyxiation. You just couldn't breathe. And sometimes it took days, sometimes just hours, depending on what kind of condition you were in. And Jesus was not in the best of shape when he got to the cross. As I said, he, they beat him literally to within an inch of his life. And you didn't hang on a cross as much as you moved on a cross, up and down, up and down, writhing in excruciating pain, trying to find relief, trying to find air for your lungs. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is on his face and he is alone. And he says, do I have to drink this cup? Is there any other way? Father, is there some way you could take this away from me? When I consider all that, that prayer makes sense to me. And then he says, "Nevertheless, not what I want, but God, what you want—that's what I want to do." None of us should ever belly ache whenever we—it is clear to us what God expects us to do. We, we should never belly ache. We, we just got to go back to this moment, and and we we see Jesus living it out for us. What it means to be obedient, Lord. What do you want? In addition to the taunting and in addition to being punched out and the flogging and the crucifixion, you have to wonder what it was like for Jesus to come into contact with the horror of human sin. We say Jesus died for my sins. What exactly did that mean to him? Um, What if the sinless one on the cross carried the horror of the world's brokenness? There's a movie called The Green Mile. Maybe you've seen it. In that movie, Tom Hanks is a prison guard, and he is a prison guard on a, 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 flo- a an area of the prison where the, 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 these prisoners are on death row. And there's a guy there named John Coffey, big dude, and he's been condemned to die. And it's a the movie's about this relationship between John Coffey and Tom Hanks's character. And John Coffey has either the gift or the curse of touching people and seeing what they've done. Toward the end of the movie, there's a scene where he puts his hand through the cell and he takes Tom Hanks' hand. And suddenly there is this horrific look on Tom Hanks' face as he begins to see this image that that John Coffey is able to enable him to see. And what John Coffey is communicating to him is the death of two small girls who've been murdered. And this look on Tom Hanks' face is just, it's just not something you soon forget. And I just wonder, what, what if something like that happened on the cross with Jesus? I don't know that it did, but what if... What if he saw or carried every shouting match that you've ever been a part of? What if he saw or carried every person who ever shouted words of anger? What if he saw or carried every time someone was betrayed? What if if Jesus saw or carried every time somebody who's big picked on or took advantage of somebody who was little? What if when Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow? It wasn't just the physical torture or the flogging or the crucifixion or the humiliation or the taunting. What if it was killing him? What was killing him in the Garden of Eden was this idea that the sinless one is going to come into contact with a sinful world. And that there would be a time that he would take on all the sin of the whole world and would thus experience this separation from God. And Jesus knew what was in the cup. And he says, Don't make me drink what's in this cup. He is dismantled, he's fallen apart, he needs his friends. He needs company. He goes back to them. Peter, James, and John are supposed to be keeping watch. Verse 40 tells us he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. These guys are exhausted. One hour, guys. I need you for one hour. You can't help but hear the disappointment. He comes back, John's sleeping, James is sacked out, Peter is sawing logs. They wake up, and I think they would say about this particular point in their life, this is not my best work. You think about them, and and I feel sad for them. I I feel sad for us. I, I feel sad for me. Because I know that there is a gap that exists between the person that I truly want to be and the person that God gets much of the time. We look at them, and if we're honest, we'd say, you know what, that is so me. Not at our best, at our worst. That could have been me. And they wake up, and they know what a disappointment they are to Jesus in that moment. And he's asking the question, could you men not watch with me for one hour? Which leads you to believe that the praying that Jesus was doing, he didn't just pray a couple of sentences. And if he did, he was praying those sentences over and over and over again. He was gone for some time. I I don't want to drink this cup. God, if there's any way that this can go away from me, take it away. If there's some other way, can we do that? I don't want this. I think it was likely a lengthy process. It's interesting. Jesus says in verse 41, Watch and pray. And if you have a pen in your hand, you want to circle this word coming up. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Circle you so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. You would think at this point Jesus would be saying, why aren't you concerned about me? I'm facing a cross here. Why aren't you praying for me? But that's not what Jesus says. He says, guys, if you won't pray for me, at least pray for yourselves that you do not fall into temptation. And Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He also knows what's about to happen to his disciples. He leaves again. He goes further back into the olive orchard. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed. seems like a repeat. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. May your will be done. that remind you of any other place where you hear that in Scripture? your will be done on earth it's part of the Lord's prayer the disciples come to Jesus and ask how do, how do we pray You know, how, Lord teach us to pray and, and so Jesus teaches them he said when you pray pray like this our father in heaven um, may your name be honored hallowed be your name may your kingdom come may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you realize that when you pray that what you're praying is your will be done in me your will be done in me not your will jesus prays, but your will be done and when the when we when you pray the lord's prayer and you say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven something gets implied in that statement Your will, not my will. Understand what prayer is for. Jesus in the olive grove, in the garden of Gethsemane, in the olive press place, prayer is not simply telling God what he wants. Prayer is aligning his will with the Father's will. That's what prayer was for Jesus in the garden. you realize that the activity of prayer at its highest is not simply telling God the things you want. Prayer at its highest is aligning your will with God's will. God, what do you want? What do you want me to do? I want to do what you want me to do. One of the greatest launch pads for spiritual progress in your life in walking with Christ is coming to the point where you can say, your will not mine and if you really want to get yourself stuck in faith and you don't want to move beyond and you don't want to grow anymore then simply cross your arms and say my will I want my will may my will be done you ask somebody why didn't you forgive that person I didn't want to what my will I'm going to forgive them even in the Lord's prayer Jesus says forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us it's as if we say God I need your grace I'm going to extend grace I need your forgiveness I'm going to extend forgiveness forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors so why haven't you forgiven that person I don't feel like it wasn't my will often getting unstuck in your spiritual life begins with saying nevertheless not my will but your will be done i will yield to your will there are significant areas of your life where you go how do you want me to treat this person not how i want to treat them how do you want me to treat them much of my counseling could be solved if people would just come to this understanding god not my will but your will be done there are times in counseling when it becomes crystal clear this is what God wants and the problem would be solved if the person would just say then I'll do that but what happens is people kind of lock into this idea and they say that's not what I want to do when Jesus is in the garden he says please take this cup from me I don't want to drink it Then he says, your will be done. He models for us spiritual submission. He models for us what it means to respond with an open heart to the creator who made us. He models for us what it means to be willing to do what the God who loves us, takes care of us, provides for us. He he models for us how to be obedient to a father who wants to lead us into spiritual submission and spiritual provision. And he prays, your will be done. I don't want this, but whatever your will is, that's what I want. He needs his friends. Verse 43, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. These guys are just wiped out. He says, man, I I need you. I need you to be with me. And they're out again. And again, I feel sad for them, but I feel sad for me because that could be me. Verse 44, so he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. It's, he goes back for this time of prayer, he comes back. Then he returned to the disciples and said, verse 45, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's, let us go, here comes my betrayer. It's about to get on. I mean, it's, this is like right before, you know that moment when something big's about to happen in your world and it's like, here we go. This is it for Jesus. These guys are coming for him and once they lay hands on him, nothing's going to be the same. They look up and torches are moving toward them. Now, it's Passover week. Pilgrims are all over the city. They are likely out on the countryside, out on the hills. There's probably campfires and tents everywhere because the city's full for Passover. There's probably voices that they can hear in the distance of people talking over campfires. So movement wouldn't have been unusual but this movement was peculiar with all of the torches coming in their direction kind of picture a state park in the summer when you can hear voices in the distance and you know maybe a pot or something clanging you know you can hear people living movement would have been ordinary voices would have been ordinary verse 47 while he was still speaking judas one of the 12 there's supposed to be a peculiar sting when you read that Judas arrived, one of his closest friends. He had taken many meals with Judas. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. It's dark. They come into the garden. Judas marches right up to Jesus and he puts a kiss on his cheek. Greetings, Rabbi, he says. A kiss is a symbol of affection and brotherhood and honor. And Judas, as he betrays Jesus, kissed him. Verse 50, Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. The men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And the disciples do not run. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who this was, but But John, in his account, tells us that this was Peter. Are you surprised that it was Peter? you got to love Peter. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter is packing heat. He draws his sword and he cuts this guy's ear off. And you ask yourself, why would he cut off his ear? Well, he probably wasn't aiming for the ear he pulls his sword he realizes something's up and he goes to cleave this guy's head right in two and the guy sees a flash of something and he kind of flinches and off comes the ear i mean it's not like listen peter was a fisherman peter's not a galilean gladiator okay he is not accustomed to cleaving people's heads open this is not his game he doesn't know what he's doing he's just trying to protect jesus he lops this guy's ear off Jesus immediately puts a stop to it but you understand what Peter's doing here Peter's trying to live up to the promises that he made Peter's trying to say I told you over my dead body I'm ready to go and you can laugh at Peter and be, you know, we can, Peter later is not going to do very well but I, I like Peter Peter's my kind of guy he doesn't know what he's doing but he's trying to do something Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, put that thing up before you hurt yourself. All right, just put it up. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Let me break this down for you. A legion is 6,000, okay? 6,000, he says, I could call... 12 legions. 12 at 6,000 is 72,000 angels. I'm not talking about Cupid with the arrow. All right? That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about warrior angels. Look at them and your face melts. Angels. Right? Bad, bad people to mess with. Raiders of the Lost Ark kind, right? That you just don't want to look at them. Bad. Mess you up. And he says, don't you realize all I have to do is ask my father and I could have those here at my disposal. Verse 55, at that time Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have to come out with swords and clubs and capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. The point is to arrest Jesus and get this thing over with as quick as they can so that he's dead before most of the people even realize what's going on and he'll be gone and we'll never have to worry about him again. That was the goal. By 9 a.m. he will be on a cross. A lot of these people aren't going to be awake at 9 a.m. to even realize what's happened. But this has taken place, this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And Peter has the courage to follow along kind of at a distance. But when Jesus is inside the the high priest's house getting punched out, uh, Peter is on the outside denying Jesus. Hey, you were with him. Weren't you with him? No, I don't know who he was. I've never met that guy. And he swears and curses. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. Three times in one night. And this is where you would write across the text in big letters not your best work. Someone might say these men did not deserve to be disciples of Jesus. But the word deserve. <laughs> the word deserve is not a word that exists in the vocabulary of grace. Grace is something that we cannot earn and do not deserve. I'll take you back to verse 31 and we'll close. Then Jesus told them this very night, you will all fall away on account of me for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now I told you we were going to skip verse 32 and we come back to it. I want you to look at verse 32. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. That is shepherd language. Shepherds lead sheep. He goes ahead. These two verses appear back to back. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Then it says, but I will go ahead of you into Galilee. In the same breath, Jesus is predicting their failure and he's also predicting their reunion their failure is not final he didn't give up on them and he wasn't through with them they would have a lot of work to do coming up their failure was not final I'm going to do something I don't normally ask you to do I'm going to ask you to bow your head I want to just kind of lead you and speak over you just a moment I want to focus in on two sentences in your life and in mine the first one is this he is not done with you I don't know what kind of finality you brought into this room this morning. I don't know where you um, might look at your relationship with God and think, "Man, it's over." I just it's just over. I, I can't. I'm not good enough. He is not done with you. The second phrase is this: I don't I don't know what you've brought in here with you in terms of baggage and sin and separation from God and embarrassment and you know i can't believe i did that or i wish i could take that back i don't know what kind of things you brought in here that make you think that you're not good enough or that you don't even deserve to be sitting in one of these chairs how could you know here i am worshiping what a farce i think god wants to say to you your failure is not final i can handle your failure i think that's what god would say And yeah, it breaks my heart. And yeah, it it causes some problems and disappoints me, sure. But my love for you is way bigger than that. And my grace and my mercy extend way farther than any possible thing you could ever do. So, Father, this morning, we are humbled as we sit here and consider everything that Jesus went through to purchase forgiveness on our behalf. And if we sit and think on it too long, it just flat out breaks us down. We, we, we do not deserve it. We do not. And then we hear you say that the word deserve does not exist in the vocabulary of grace. sit here thankful for your gift to us. We need you. Father, we're thankful that we can say that our failure is not final. And you are not through with us. It is in Jesus' precious name we